ask you to take your Bibles out and turn to the book of First Thessalonians as I continue. This is uh, episode number nine in our series through the study of First Thessalonians, a series I've entitled Living with Hope. And so this book of First Thessalonians was written to this small fledgling church in this city that was an evil and wicked city, a, a place that would be hopeless for Christians to live. And he's writing them to live with hope. And we'll see that even as we look in our text for today in chapter 4, the first two verses of chapter 4. Now, I'm sure I'm like many of you as we continue to advance in years that we often have vivid memories or recollections from our childhood and adolescence. Sometimes those things hit me unexpectedly, and I'll remember things, and I'll recall things, either words or conversations or occasions or events or experiences that I had long since forgotten. One of the things that I remember, particularly that my mom and my dad said to me, well, pretty regularly, was this, Troy, we know you can do better. Your parents ever said anything like that to you? We know you can do better. Uh, I would hear it from my mom when I got my report card at the end of that nine weeks, and she would see it, and she would say, Troy, I know you can do better. Uh, on the family farm, growing up working every day as a child and teenager, as I would do a, a task or perform a chore on the farm, scraping manure out of hog stalls, Troy, you can do better. <laughs> my dad would say that to me. On occasion, my teachers would send notes home or there would be comments on my report card saying something to the effect of, Troy's got great potential. You ever heard that? We know he can do better. Now, you need to know, I did my very best to hide my potential. I mean, why live at a level of expectation you really don't want to live at, right? But it seeped out, and I would see these things, and they would see these things. And it wasn't that I was failing particular subjects, but uh, my parents and my teachers saw that I could do better. And the truth of the matter is, they were right. And then as I became a parent of five children, I would hear that type of phrase come out of my own mouth towards my children. Uh, my son Trevor just f finished his first semester. He's now actually about to finish the, the third quarter of all A's, his first year in high school. So, like my parents before me, I looked at his report card, and his lowest grade was a 96 in geography. And I said, what happened to those four points, Trevor? I'm only kidding. So we can do better. Now, as your pastor, I want to say to you, as a church, I appreciate you greatly. I've told you before, there is not another church I would want to pastor, much less even be a member of. If I had a church to choose to be a member of, it would be this church, because you are growing and excelling and maturing as, as some consider their lives and ministry as being at one church of a small size or mid-size, seen as a stepping stone. I'm here to tell you, I've never seen my ministry here as a stepping stone to something bigger and better. I intend, unless the Lord tells me otherwise, to be here until I can't do it anymore or you won't have me, <laughs> whichever comes first. And... Uh, as your pastor, I want to say to you, I do appreciate you, but you can do better. You can do better. By way of example, let me commend you for a particular area of maturity where we have grown and developed, and that is with regard to our missions ministry. 
We have grown, I think the number is, since 2014, our missions giving has increased by 267%. Is that the right number? Our math ma major here is the one that keeps me on track there. 267%. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> you can do better. One of the things our staff gets to enjoy in, uh, in, with regard to our missions conference, and again, you know last year we had to cancel it because of the pandemic, so we haven't had our, our annual missions conference in two years. One of the things we get to enjoy is at the conclusion of our conference, we gather with our missionaries and they have an evaluation form we'll, where they answer some questions, they tell us what they liked about the schedule, what they didn't like, how we can improve, and we use those evaluation forms to tweak our conference and to uh, change our logistics. But one of the things we get to enjoy is to hear them write about you. They say how faithful you are, how encouraging you are, how they have felt loved by you and cared for by you. And as your pastor, I want to tell you, I thank you and it thrills my heart that you have such great biblical hospitality for these choice servants. You are doing above and beyond what we could think, but you can do better. You can do better. I say that because that's exactly what Paul says to the church in Thessalonica. He commends them for three chapters. He's been commending them on how they are excelling, how they are abounding, how they are doing so well. And then we get to chapter four, verses one and two, and he says, you're doing so well, you can do better. You can excel even more. These two verses really introduce the section of this epistle, of this letter, where he teaches us. As we study this passage over the coming weeks, we'll see Paul approach some subjects that are perennial issues for the first century Christian and they're perennial issues for the 21st century Christian. If you let your eyes scan down, you'll see the next six verses we look at are going to discuss our sexual lives as Christians, sexual immorality uh, in our lives and in our culture. Very relevant topic. You let it scan down a little further, you'll see we'll, ad we'll address our vocation, our work lives, our jobs. You go a little further, he's going to deal with how we respond to death and the death of loved ones. Do we have hope or do we lose hope? Sex, vocation, death, issues we all face. Now, I entitled my message this morning, Excel Even more. And I get that from the last phrase of verse 1, which I think could have been translated better in the English Standard Version, the version I preach from. You, you'll notice in verse 1 it says, more and more. And you might be tempted to think, well, because it's two words that are the same in English, it must be the same in the language of the Bible, Greek. It's not. They're two distinct words. And I think the New American Standard Bible, it's better translated. It's the translation I use for my title, excel even more. Because that first word there it means to excel. It means to abound. It means to go above and beyond expectation, to exceed, to overflow. So that's ex exactly, again, what Paul's saying here. You are excelling. You are abounding. You are surpassing expectations, but you can do more. You can do better. He affirmed them in chapter 1. If you'll remember, all the way back in chapter 1, he said, your reputation as a church is spreading throughout all of Macedonia. Your faithfulness in chapter 2, he says, listen, I'm so thankful for you because you received our message for what it really is, not the words of men, but the word of God. In chapter 3, he says, Timothy brought your good report. 
that you are abounding in love and faith. But you can do better. You can do more. This is God's inspired and errant word we're going to study. And so I pray that we would hear what the Lord would say even to us today. Here's what the Bible says beginning in verse 1. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So again, the exhortation to the church in Thessalonica and the exhortation to the church in Lookout Valley. Excel even more. You are commendable in so many ways, but abound in greater ways. I mean, think about it. This was the attitude of the Apostle Paul for his own life. Here is Paul, who was in a spectacular way converted on the road to Damascus by the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a vision of the resurrected Christ. And not only was he converted in a spectacular way, but he was called by Jesus to be an apostle in the church, a foundational member of that band of brothers that served upon which all of Christendom rests today. And beyond that, the Apostle Paul was used by God mightily. His message and his ministry was confirmed by the fact that he supernaturally was a vessel to bring healing to those who were sick. He's one that brought the gospel and made inroads into the unreached, taking the good news of Christ to pagans and barbarians. And if that weren't enough, he was afflicted, he was persecuted, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked for the sake of the gospel. And finally, over half of our New Testament was written by his inspired pen. You would think Paul could rest on his laurels, but that wasn't his attitude. Notice what he said in Philippians chapter 3. He says, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knew he had not arrived yet, and Paul knew the church in Thessalonica had not arrived yet. And so like a good coach comes alongside an athlete and says, you're doing great, you're performing well, but you could do a little better, he comes alongside this church and says the same thing. You see, there is, with a church like ours, the temptation to experience some level of maturity, to comparatively look at what we're doing compared to other churches, bigger and smaller, and say, you know what, R really two ways we could, we could tend. We could tend towards pride, or we can tend towards complacency. We could tend towards pride and say, well, haven't we got it all together? I mean, there ain't no church giving as much money to missions comparatively as what we are giving. That's pride. But we could tend towards complacency. Well, we're doing pretty good. Let's just coast. Neither of those things are the, the attitude of Paul or his inspiration towards the church in Thessalonica. Again, if you let your eyes scan down, you'll see that next week we'll consider the portion of Scripture where this specifically applies to our lives sexually. Now, it's been said of preachers, if you want to draw a crowd as a preacher, Announce ahead of time you'll be preaching on one of two subjects. One, sex. Two, the end times. Well, let me just tell you, in the next couple of weeks, we'll be preaching on sex and the end times, all right? So you ought to be here. It just so happens 
that next Sunday is daylight savings time, which means we lose an hour of sleep. So whatever you got to do, go to bed an hour early, get your little sleepy time essential oils and put them in your diffuser, whatever you got to do to get some good sleep, be here, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, because this is going to be an incredibly relevant message for us. Do you think we live in a sexually perverse culture? It ain't nothing compared to what the Thessalonians were living in. So this is going to be great instruction for us next week. All this has to do with excelling even more with our walk with Christ. So this is the theme here. This is the introduction to the final section of the book. And there's really four things from these two verses I want us to consider, four principles that will inform us, really, for the rest of our study in this epistle. The first one is this. Number one, the priority of excelling. The priority of excelling. Paul says, finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you. Our passage begins with that word, finally. And we can think, well, well he means in conclusion. Well, you'd be wrong if that's what you thought Paul meant here. Uh, this is not even quite the halfway point of this epistle. Chapters uh, 1, 2, and 3 contain 43 verses. Chapters 4 and 5 contain 46 verses. So we're just right at the halfway point. So Paul's not saying finally in the sense of in conclusion. It's kind of like the old preacher's joke. You know what it means when a pastor says or a preacher says in conclusion? Not much. Paul says finally, not in conclusion, but finally, I'm getting to the exhortation I've been intending to give you all along. These three chapters were set up. These three chapters were introduction. Now, finally, or ultimately, this is what I'm wanting to key in on with you. Namely, to excel even more, to grow, to mature, to advance, to have this what's, been, what's known as progressive sanctification. For three chapters, he's been hinting at this and intimating at that. And now, to follow these next 46 verses, he's going to describe that in detail. What is the practical application to our lives? Well, what does the rubber really meet the road? This is really Paul's common practice in his epistles. If you'll remember two years ago when we studied the book of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 were these very deep, profound theological truths. You turn the page to chapter 4, and then all of a sudden there's all these practical applications of that truth within the different arenas of our life. Similar to the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, these sweeping depths of theological mountains, really. And then chapter 12, therefore, brothers, present your bodies as living sacrifices. And so that's the application. Similar thing here in the book of 1 Thessalonians. So this is why I say this is the priority for excelling. Why? Because belief informs behavior. The precepts and principles inform our practice. What our faith is describes how we should function, right? This is a priority of excelling. This is really what we're called to do. And did you notice the way in which he was telling them of this priority, the way in which he was encouraging them? Two verbs there at the beginning of verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge. Ask. He's making a request. Paul was not browbeating the Thessalonians. He was not coming to them with these words of condemnation or of guilt or manipulation to try to motivate them to some form of spiritual excellence. He's saying, I'm asking. And then the other word is a word we've looked at already, urge. It's to come alongside, parakaleo. He says, I, I'm coming to encourage you. I'm coming to ask you. He could have, on the basis of his authority as an apostle, say, I command you. 
But he appeals to them with this familial term we've seen already, brothers and sisters, I ask and urge you. He urges them. This is this humility here. There's a pastoral warmth toward these faithful followers of Christ. This is the priority of spiritual growth, maturing, growing. Now, what this means is, listen, spiritual growth is not completing a class and checking it off your list. Spiritual growth isn't reading a particular book by a particular author. Spiritual growth is an involvement in some ministry. Spiritual growth is not even giving financially. Those are all the results of the priority of spiritual growth and excelling even more. See, the, the purpose of excelling in our spiritual walk, the purpose of spiritual maturity, listen, is to know God. That's it, to know God. Why do I study the Bible? Do I study the Bible to just have all this information packed in my brain? Do I study the Bible so that I can win Bible trivia on Friday night game night? No. I study the Bible to know the God of the Bible. I study the Word to know the God of the Word. And let me just say something about that. Uh, We read already in Psalm 63, notice a similar Psalm 42 The word of the psalmist informs our attitude of our hearts here. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you. O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Now, as we think about this reason for pursuing God, pursuing the word, pursuing spiritual maturity, I want to just give you really a couple of responses that happen to us when we come to know God better. Two words I want to come around. Fear and delight. Two responses to knowing God. Two responses to excelling in our spiritual walk. Fear and delight. When you get a glimpse of God, it is a fearful thing. When you come to see God as awesome, you are in awe because he's awesome fear means this reverence for his holiness a reverence for his power this fear is not a servile fear where we are these slaves and he's a cruel taskmaster who is whipping us no it's a fear in the sense that god knows all about me god knows the wickedness of my own heart i stand before a holy god condemned fully worthy of his judgment upon me. And when I draw near to God, when I come to know him in the word, he deals with my sin. That's a fearful thing. But also it's a delightful thing. Because here's how he deals with my sin. He forgives it on the basis of his son's righteousness and satisfactory death in my place. And you know what that brings to my heart? delight, joy, to know the grace and the goodness of the Lord. There's a, there's a delight in this longing for God as we come to know him. And it's been my experience that, that often we can be out of balance in one of two ways here. We can be out, out of balance in one way where we're so chummy, chummy with God, there is no reverence. 
Or we can be out of balance when we're walking in such fear that we don't see him as this compassionate, loving father who wants intimacy with his children. F.W. Faber wrote some magnificent lines of poetry in his hymn, The Fear of God, that really communicate these two sides of the same coin. He says this, My fear of thee, O Lord, exalts like life within my veins, a fear which rightly claims to be one of love's sacred pains. There is no joy the soul can meet upon life's varied road like the sweet fear that sits and shrinks under the eye of God. Oh, thou art greatly to be feared. Thou art so prompt to bless. The dread to miss such love as thine makes fear but love's excess. But fear is love, and love is fear, and in and out they move. But fear is an intenser joy than mere unfrightened love. They love thee little, if at all, who do not fear thee much. If love is thine attraction, Lord, fear is thy very touch. Where this mingling of fear and delight exists together, you know what I hear? The call to excel even more, to abound and to progress in our sanctification, to grow in our maturity, to come closer to God. And again, when we come closer to God, we recognize his holiness, we recognize our sinfulness, we recognize that we are in judgment and he stands as the only judge, but we also recognize his magnificent, amazing grace, and that brings delight. That's the priority. Here's the second thing I want us to see. Number two, the power for excelling. If the priority is that we excel in our spiritual lives, that we progress, that we are sanctified, well, what is the power for excelling? Again, verse one, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus. In the Lord Jesus. Paul points them towards their union with Christ. Now, if you're familiar at all with Paul's epistles, you know this is a common theme that he repeats again and again and again. Typically, his description of our union with Christ is ascribed in the two, two words, in Christ. In Christ, in all of its varied equivalents. Throughout Paul's epistles, listen, he, he mentions our union with Christ with those words and, and similar ones 216 times. So this is not a minor subject for Paul, our union with the Lord. It is a predominant subject with Paul. He summed up the concept wonderfully in Colossians 3.3, which you're familiar with. For your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is our union with our Creator. It speaks of the believer's unchangeable, intimate uniting with Christ. And it is this union with Jesus, the fact that we are in Christ, that we are hidden with God in Christ, that serves as the resource, serves as the power through which we can, in fact, excel even more, that we can grow, that we can develop. We saw last week uh, how it is, in fact, the Lord Jesus that provides the power for change, for growth. Look again at last week, chapter 3, verse 12. Wade preached on this, and may the Lord make you. Who causes our growth? It's not pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. The only way that love can increase and abound in our spiritual progress, the only way we can excel even more is when the Lord 
does, this, does it. And listen to this. This is a very simple principle. The Lord only does this work of his excelling in those in whom he is indwelling. Let me say that again. The Lord only does this work of excelling in those in whom he is indwelling. He's calling these Thessalonians to a place of spiritual excellence in Christ. And so this is what seems to be an obvious reality that we can't grow unless we're saved, right? But we can't grow unless we've genuinely been converted. Now let me show you a couple of examples from the scripture of how it is the Lord that provides this power, provides this strength, provides this resource of growth. Paul, a very familiar passage to you in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, but he, that's Jesus, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul, commenting on that, says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In Ephesians chapter 1, he uses in just this one verse four unique, distinct Greek words to describe the power of Jesus. He says, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? And then he concludes the book of Ephesians with this word, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might the strength to follow his commands, the strength to grow, the strength to excel, to do better and better, does not come from us. It comes from, and it is rooted in, our union with Christ. And so I have to ask a question right here. And I wonder, perhaps you're here today, and you've made attempts at spiritual growth. You've you've attempted to grow in the Lord, but those attempts have been fleeting and failing. The problem may be very simple to diagnose, but very troubling to consider. You may not be saved. You may not be a Christian. You may have not been able to grow because you do not have Christ dwelling within you. Therefore, you don't have access to his transforming power. This is exactly the possible problem Paul posed to the church in Corinth. Notice what he said in 2 Corinthians 13, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you? It's a union with Christ. Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Have you responded to the gospel with genuine faith and repentance? Have you heard of the work of Christ on your behalf? That all of us, by nature and by choice, are sinners. We are under the righteous judgment and wrath of God. But because of God's great love for us, even when we are dead in our trespasses and sins, he sent forth his one and only son, born of a woman, born among man, tempted under the law as we're tempted, yet he never failed. And this same Jesus took a criminal's death. He died in our place. And God, being rich in mercy, put our sin upon him and his glorious resurrection from the dead proves he can provide life. The question today is, have you put your faith in that work? Are you trusting in that? Or are you trusting in, yes, the work of Jesus plus what I bring to the table? This is the great deception. 
we think we bring something to the table. Jesus did this, but, you know, I've got a certain level of goodness. I'm not a bad dude. <laughs> we, we think, yes, we trust in Jesus, but my level of goodness, that's really kind of what makes me forgivable. No. You and I are miserable wretches. Well, I bring some level of deservedness. I'm worthy of his forgiveness. No. The only thing you're worthy of is death and eternity in hell. Paul says, examine yourself to see that you are in the faith, that Christ is indeed in you, and that you have access to this divine power for excelling. Now, on the flip side, friends, it is possible to be converted, to be a Christian, and not be excelling, not be maturing. For example, this church in Corinth. Paul wrote to them, and he talked about how they received the gospel, how they trusted in Jesus, how the Holy Spirit came upon them. They were given supernatural spiritual gifts, but yet this church in Corinth had all kinds of issues and problems. There were dissensions and divisions. There, were, there was perversity, incest, fornication, adultery, drunkenness, lawsuits between members of the same church. What was their problem? They had allowed the habits and the patterns of this sick city of Corinth to come into the church. And so they were not growing. They even went so far as to think that Christ could be linked up with Belial, an idol, false god. If you want to short-circuit God's power in your life, do that. So we see Paul gives us the priority of excelling. It is spiritual growth that he's after for in these Thessalonians. It's, and we see the power for excelling, the indwelling Christ. Here's the third thing I want us to consider, the progress of excelling. The progress of excelling. He says how you ought to walk and to please God. Walk in the New Testament is a metaphor for the Christian life. Walking is really indicative of this slow, unspectacular progression of sanctification and growth. It's a common metaphor in the New Testament. It's not the only metaphor for the Christian life. Paul will use the metaphor of running a race. Paul will use the metaphor of fighting the fight. He talks about boxing. He talks about wrestling. Hallelujah. <laughs> Paul uses the metaphor of uh, giving our lives as a living sacrifice. But this metaphor of walking to describe the Christian life is really probably the most predominant. He says, we told you, we taught you how you ought to walk and how you ought to please God. What this means, friends, is this. Listen, though salvation, conversion, is instantaneous, sanctification is not. We, as believers, myself as a Christian, when I was rescued from the domain of darkness, it was an instantaneous translation to the kingdom of his beloved son. Just like that. Quicker than that. We can't time it. I was dead, born again by the Spirit of God. I'm alive. But friends, sanctification didn't work that way. Conversion is instant. And, and what this means is, with all deference to our charismatic and Pentecostal and holiness friends, there is not some supernatural zap where all of a sudden coach promotes you from JV to varsity. It's not the way it works. There's not even, as, as our holiness friends would communicate, that you have an eradication of your sin nature at that moment. Are you kidding? 
I deal with sin every day. Spiritual maturity, growing in godliness, pursuing holiness, it is progressive. That's why I love the way Paul put it to his son in the faith, Timothy. He said this, practice these things, immerse yourself in them. Why? So that all may see your progress. Sometimes you will fall. Sometimes you will stumble. Sometimes you will walk unwisely and have to be told by a loving Christian friend you need to walk wisely. Sometimes you will walk in the flesh and you need to be told by a loving Christian friend, brother, you need to walk in the power of the Spirit. We all need to be encouraged in those things. We need to keep taking those steps, walking towards spiritual progress. This is the progress of excelling, the power for excelling, the priority for excelling. Finally, I want us to see this, the precepts for excelling. In verse 1, he said, you received from us. The King James Version supplies the word instructions. It's not really there in the Greek, but it's implied. You received instructions. You received from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Verse 2, he said, you know what instructions we gave you. So twice in these two verses, he refers to the command, the instructions, the teaching, the precepts and principles, which are absolutely essential for growing. He says, look, we request of you, we exhort and urge you to walk and to grow, to excel even more. We've told you already, we've given you instructions how to please God. And then he hearkens them back to the precepts he gave them while he was with them. Now think about it. When he went to Thessalonica, you can read about it in Acts chapter 17, he went there and he proclaimed the gospel, the gospel I proclaim today about the work of Jesus and the only way to have forgiveness with God is to trust completely in that work. He gave them the gospel, but that's not all he gave them. He gave them instructions on what it means to look like and to live as a Christian in a perverse and wicked generation. He told them, this is what it looks like in your lives. This is what it looks like in your marriage. This, this is what it looks like in your community. This is what it looks like in your job. These are ec- ethical things, moral things he talked about, what it means to mature, to live in obedience to his words. And he's pointing them back to those instructions here. And then in the rest of this book, he's going to uh, elaborate on those instructions and give us further instructions. Now, how did they view the instructions of Paul when he was with them? How did they categorize his message in their minds? Well, look at 1 Thessalonians 2. Here's how they categorized it. Paul says, we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now, I don't know how to say this any more plainly than this. You will not excel even more. You will not grow in sanctification. You will not progress in your walk with God apart from the Bible. You can't do it. You cannot grow. You cannot mature apart from regular interaction with the Word of God, which is why as a church, the Word of God is central to all we do. Right now, we've got volunteers teaching your two- and three-year-olds the timeless truths of Scripture We've got leaders, children's leaders, telling our fourth and fifth graders about the precepts of God's Word. Our youth ministry is centered upon the Word of God and teaching teenagers how to study it for themselves. This is what we do because we know there can be no excelling, there can be no growth, there can be no maturity apart from the Word of God. We are, I've told you before, we're really a Bible church. 
Everything we do is Bible-centric. Now, as Paul concludes this, these two words, these two verses, he describes the source or the provenance, if you will, for the instruction that he's giving them. He wants them to know, and this obviously includes the ones he's going to delineate over the next two chapters. Again, verse 2, notice what he says. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, this is the word of the Lord. This is the word of Christ. This is the message of Jesus, your Savior. This is the instruction of the one who hung naked, bloodied, and beaten on a cross to take the punishment for your sin. These are his instructions to you, child of God. Out of his love, he died for you, which is exactly why Paul says to the church in Corinth, the city from which he wrote 1 Thessalonians, he says this, for the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live, what? Live for themselves? No, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. As we keep the work of Jesus, the gospel, which we talk about every week, in front of our faces, the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ controls us, that he has secured for us our adoption into the very family of God, that we're not just slaves. We are children of God, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Let me go back to where I started this message. My childhood and adolescence. <laughs> On one particular occasion, when my mom was challenging me to do better, challenging me to excel even more, well, I presented to her what I thought was an airtight defense. I said, Mom, comparatively to my peers, and I'm doing a whole lot better. Mom, I don't go out drinking and partying on the weekends like my buddies at school. I don't. And not only that, Mom, nobody that I know has the amount of responsibility for a family farm that literally contributes to the livelihood of the family like I do. I work every day on the farm. And not only that, I'm a leader and involved in our church, active. But mom said, shut my mouth. She says, but Troy, they're not my children. You're my child. I'm not responsible for them. I'm responsible for you. You are God's child. And he says, you can do better. My mom said, Troy, you can do better. And she was right. You see, God had given my mother a promise when I was just two years old. And I was in the emergency room, the intensive care unit, in a coma. The word my mom received from the Lord was that God would preserve my life and I'd be used for him in his kingdom. And mom clung to that promise and she repeated that promise to me often. You can do better. And I'm telling you, look out Valley Baptist Church. You are excelling in so many ways. You are so faithful to the Lord and sacrificial, but we can do better. We can excel even more 
We've been adopted by God, and because he's given us access through Jesus, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And when we consider those things, it is great motivation for pressing on, for growing and developing. And that leads to my last thought. Our progress in holiness is a response to Christ's purchase of us to salvation.